welcome. It's wonderful to see everybody. Um, our topic today is Yiftach and Shmuel, the power of speech. I'm Yael Ziegler. This year was dedicated by the Solo, Gershinsky, and Shapiro families in memory of Rabbanit Shlomit Fass, who looked forward to the Yimeyun anxiously every summer. Um, we're going to be talking today about Yiftach and Shmuel, uh, mirror characters, what we see often in Tanakh, uh, and we see this in Chazal as well, and we're going to see also that the Midrash is aware of this, is that oftentimes the Tanakh presents for us similar characters, similar kinds of people who at their core seem to be very, very, uh, have very similar kinds of personalities, and uh, their, their lives, their spiritual lives, sometimes wind up taking very different directions one from the other. And what I'd like to suggest at the very outset is that the Tanakh, in presenting these kinds of characters, and Chazal, in picking up on these, uh, what we call mirror characters, is offering a perspective, uh, a distinction between a person's fate and their destiny. Right? Everyone is born with a certain fate. They're born with certain talents, with certain strengths, with certain weaknesses, with certain deficiencies, with certain external factors that can well determine the success or the failure of their paths. And yet the decisive factor in determining the success of their lives is not the fate that they're born with, but the destiny that they choose. And therefore, we oftentimes have two similar people whose lives should take very similar directions who end up going off in different paths. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to show that idea today specifically through the prism of describing the similarities and the differences between the figure of Yiftach and the figure of Shmuel. But I think that I, I wanted to start out with sort of the end of the shiur um, in order that you're already prepared with the, uh, the, 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 the goal of the shiur. And what we see in the Tanakh is that a lot of figures who are born with certain deficiencies are able to overcome these deficiencies, right? So that Moshe Rabbeinu overcomes his speech impediment, right? He says at the very beginning, Lo ish divarim anochi, I'm not a man of words, who ends up saying Sefer Devarim, right? That's, of course, uh, Moshe, right? And David overcomes the inferior position in his family, right? Nobody's, nobody's even paying attention to him. Well, yeah, I think I might have one more son out there with the sheep. That one more son, well, eventually everybody pays attention to him, right? And we have, you know, Yoshiahu, who overcomes the fact that his father, and more particularly his grandfather, Menashe, is one of the worst and most sinful kings that Am Yisrael ever knows. And, and these are really very different kinds of impediments that these people are born into, whether it's a speech defect or an attitude that people have towards you or a sinful environment. The Tanakh seems to be saying to us, all of these things can be overcome. And to, um, to, to really bring home this point, I want to share with you a Midrash. Some of you looking out at the familiar faces in the room, it seems to me um, uh, um, possible and if not probable that some of you may have heard me cite this Midrash before. 
uh, because I, I do think that this is really a critical midrash. It's one that is important from, uh, for every teacher to know, for every parent to know, I think probably for every person to know. It's a midrash that appears in Kohelet Rabbah. I brought it for you here in source number one. And the midrash says as follows, Yesh shehirbu chokhma letovatan. V'yesh shehirbu chokhma leraatan. Some people use wisdom for good, and some use it for bad. Two people can be born with equal uh, intellectual capabilities, and that doesn't mean that they're going to use those capabilities in the same way. Right? And they bring examples. Shehirbulatovatan, people who used wisdom for good, Moshe, Vishlomo, Shehirbulatan, Doeg, Vachitofel. Right? We won't get into the particulars here. Look at the next sentence in the Midrash. Some people are born with tremendous strength, with physical prowess, right? Some people use that strength for good, and others use it for bad. The ones who use strength for good, David those who use strength for bad, don't be shocked, Shimshon Vigolyat. I mean, it's pretty shocking to mention the two of those in the same breath. But we're not going to talk about that right now. Yesherbu osher litovatan. V'yesherbu liratan. Some people use wealth for good. Others use wealth for bad. I'll skip ahead to the next line. Yesherbu banim litovatan. V'yesherbu banim liratan. Some people use their children for good, building a, a, a family for good purposes, and some people use it for bad. People are not born with a destiny. They're, they're, they're handed a certain deck of cards, but the question as to their destiny, that's left, left up to them. Who ultimately succeeds in, challenge, in, in channeling their talents, the conditions into which they were born for good, the short answer, in my opinion, we're going to be seeing a little bit today, is that the one who succeeds in using those talents for good are first of all the one who recognizes that he was born with these advantages, with these talents, and that he was born with these talents and with these advantages, not for his own personal welfare, not to be used in order to pursue his own interests, but rather to fulfill his divine destiny, to use those God-given traits to serve God and his people. And one of the ways that I think that the Tanakh illustrates this very, very nicely is by showing us these mirror characters, these pairs of people who are born with very similar traits and use them very differently. We're going to use today's year to illustrate this through the what I call the mirror characters of Yiftach and Shmuel. I'll begin by drawing your attention to the fact that in the Gemara Rosh Hashanah, in the second source that I gave you, the Gemara draws our attention to the contrast between Yiftach and Shmuel. Right? It's a pretty well-known statement. Yiftach bidoro, kis Shmuel bidoro. Yiftach in his generation is like Shmuel in his generation. <clears throat> I'll say 
uh, you know, right? Some people are going to focus on the contrast between them, and some people are going to focus on, well, each of them do in their generation what they can manage in their generation. So as we progress through the shiur, I will express an opinion in that regard. Uh, but in, I will say for the moment, and certainly within the context of the Gemara, that this is not a very positive comparison towards Iftah, right? If you look at the very beginning of the Gemara that I brought for you here, Shakala katuv shlosha kalei olam kishlosha chamurei olam, right? So the, the, the Pasuk compares three weighty people, three serious people with three light people, right? And of course, in this comparison, Yiftah is Kal um, Shebakalin. Uh, he is being described here as someone who is of little weight. He is not someone who is deemed a particular, a particular success, a very good character. And we're going to go in that direction. What is it that Chazal are trying to say by drawing our attention to the similarity between these two figures? Well, um, in order to understand this, I think we have to understand the context of Yiftach's life, Yiftach's career, Try to understand what it is that Yiftach was meant to accomplish. I think many people are familiar with maybe the one sort of most striking event in Yiftach's life, and that is, of course, his vow. But he actually has a very, um, uh, a very long story. It's two, or at least uh, um, a parak and a half, which by Shoftim standards is not a short narrative, and he appears right in the middle of Sefer Shoftim. Iftach is introduced to us in Shoftim Perak Yud Aleph in the 11th chapter of Shoftim. Before we go there, I want to say a couple words about Sefer Shoftim. Uh, Sefer Shoftim, some of you may have heard me talk about it before, is nothing short of an abysmal failure. It's a failed period. And it's pretty shocking and, and terribly upsetting because, of course, this is the first period of Am Yisrael's settlement in the land. And it's pretty shocking the degree to which it fails to yield the kind of results that we expect from it, both socially and religiously. It really should have been successful, not just because it's the first period of settlement, but because the previous period, the period of conquest, that which is recorded in the book of Yoshua is a very successful period. It's a successful period in terms of its social interactions, by and large. It's a successful period in terms of its leadership. It's a successful period in terms of its religious interactions. There's very little sinning going on, really almost uh, really atypically, in Sefer Yoshua. And it ends with a covenant. It ends with the convening of a breed that Yoshua makes between Am Yisrael and God. And this covenant, I brought it for you here on the source sheets. We're not really supposed to bring Tanakh sources on the source sheets, but I did it to save a little bit of time and also to bold for you those pieces of the covenant that I want you to pay particular attention to. <clears throat> what, is, what does seem to be clear is that the fact that this covenant appears at the very, very end of Sefer Yoshua, in the final chapter, means that this is the covenant that is meant to accompany them into the next period of settlement. The breach of Yoshua Perek Kavdalid is when Yoshua turns to the people and gives them a choice. 
He says, you can choose to serve God. Or you can choose to serve the, the, the gods of Canaan that have been served in this land by the peoples of this land, by the Canaanites of this land until now. Look in Pasuk Yodalit in source number three. Yoshua turns to the people and says, Ve'ata, and now, Yeru'at Hashem, fear God, oto bitamim uvemet, and serve him faithfully and truly, the Hasiru et Elohim asher avdu avotechem be'ever hanar, and get rid of those gods that your forefathers worshipped across the river uvemitzrayim and in Egypt, Ve'ivdu et Hashem, and serve God. But I mentioned that actually Yahushua gives them a choice. Look what he says. Vim ra be'enechem l'avodet Hashem. And if it is bad for you to serve God, b'charu l'chem ayom et mita avodun. Imet Elohim, asher avdu avodetechem, asher me'ever ha'nahar. Ve'imet Elohei ha'emori, asher atem yoshvim be'artzam. You get to choose. You can choose whether to serve the, the, the gods that your forefathers served back in Mesopotamia, right? Remember Terach, right? He was serving other gods. That's the beginning of this chapter, which we read every year on the night of Pesach, right? Or perhaps you might choose to serve the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Emori, who, uh, who are the gods of the place where you're living now. And Yoshua goes on and he says, But I and my household, we will serve God. Listen to what the nation responds. God forbid that we would abandon God and serve other gods. Why? Because God took us out of Egypt. I'm going to skip ahead to Pasuk Yudchet. And God got rid of all of these nations and all of these uh, um, uh, um, uh, peoples that were living in this land. We too will serve God. Okay, so at this point, Yoshua is sort of skeptical for good reason. We won't go into all of that. Look ahead at Pasuk of Aleph. Again, the people respond to Yoshua's skepticism and they say, Okay, so now we have the break, right? It's very promising, it's very optimistic. The people are quite insistent. We are determined to serve God. And Yoshua recognizing that serving God in a land which has been traditionally worshiping Canaanite gods for so long, that's not a simple task. But the people are insistent. They recognize that God has been the one who has taken them out of Egypt and enabled them to enter the land of Canaan. So Yoshua at this point says, okay, you are your own witnesses. Because you have chosen for yourselves to serve God. They say, indeed, we are witnesses. And now, says Yahushua, 
Asher Bekir Bechem, right? Get rid of those idols that you have. Oh, we, we won't go into why they have idols in their midst. It, right, it reminds us very much of Yaakov, right? Telling his household the same thing in Breshit, Perak Lamed Hay, after he conquers Shechem. And at this point, the people do so. Look in Pasuk Kavdalet, Vayomrua Am El Yoshua, Et Hashem, Elokeinu Navod, Uv Kolo Nishma. We will serve God and we will listen to God's voice. So a covenant has been convened. It wasn't an easy covenant. It wasn't an obvious covenant. But the people enter into this covenant with full recognition of the difficulties and of their own volition. The problem, of course, of Sefer Shoftim is that they keep violating this exact covenant. Vayasu hara be'enei Hashem vayavdu ha'be'alim v'ashtarot, etc., etc. They continuously renege on, on the terms of this, of this covenant, which they themselves entered into. And, and one of the ways that we note that is that in Sefer Shoftim, there are three occasions on which a representative of God comes to rebuke the people for having violated the terms of this covenant. And I say violated the terms of this covenant because what we see is, is that each time this representative of God comes to rebuke the people, he uses language from Yoshua Perak of Dalek. Okay, so uh, now I'm going to ask you to open your Tanakhs. Let's look in Shoftim Perak Bet. This is the first time that we have a representative of God coming to rebuke them. In this case, it's a Malach Hashem. It's an angel of God. Look at what he says in Perak Bet, Pasuka. Let's look in Pasuka Aleph. Vayal Malach Hashem mina Gilgal HaBochim. The Malach Hashem comes. I'm in Shoftim, Perak Bet, Pasuka Aleph. Vayomer, and he says to them, Aletchem in Mitzrayim. Remember? I took you out of Egypt. Vaviyatchem ala arz asher nishpati lavatechem. And I took you into the land that I promised. And I said, I won't break this covenant forever. You should not make a covenant with the people who live in this land. You should break their altars. Remember that? They said, you did not listen to my voice. That's the first time. Now look ahead to Shoftim Perek Vav. In Shoftim Perek Vav, once again, God sends a representative. This time, it's a Navi to rebuke the people and save them again. You have violated the terms of the covenant of Yoshua Kavdalin. Look in Pasuk Chet. I mean, Shoftim Perek Vav, Pasuk Chet. Vayishlach Adonai Ishnavi el Bnei Yisrael, vayomer lahem, Koamar Adonai Elohi Yisrael, Anochi ha'eleiti etchem mimitzrayim, v'otzi etchem mibeit avadim, I took you out of Egypt, v'atzil etchem miyad mitzrayim, miyakolo chatechem, v'agaresh otam mipneichem, v'etna lachem et artsam. The same language from Yoshua Kavdalet. When the people say, of course we're going to serve God, remember? He took us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's the one who expelled all of those nations so that we could come into the land. 
Look ahead in, in Pasuk Yud. And I said to you, says God, Ani Hashem Elokechem, Lo tiru et Elohei ha'emori asher atem yoshvim be'artzam ve'lo shmatem bekoli. You see it? I said to you, says God, do not fear the gods of the Amorites. That's exactly what we saw back in Yoshua Kavdalet. And you did not listen. Okay, so once again, we have a violation of Yoshua Kavdalet. Now I'm going to take you to the third and final passage in which there's a rebuke um, from God to the people as a result of their violation of the breed. And in this case, at the midpoint of the book, this is in Shoftim Perak Yud, it is God himself who seems to come to rebuke the people. And this uh, description starts out in Perak Yud, Pasuk Vav, with a very wide-ranging description of their violations. It's very sweeping. Look in Pasuk Vav. Vayosifu, I'm in Perak Yud, Pasuk Vav, chapter 10, verse 6. Vayosifu b'nei Yisrael asot arab e'nei Hashem. Vayavdu et ha-be'alim ve'et ha-shtarot ve'et alo'i aram ve'et alo'i tzidot ve'et alo'i mo'av ve'et alo'i b'nei amon ve'et alo'i plishtim. Vayazvu et Hashem v'lo avaduhu. Right? They worshipped everybody and they abandoned God and they did not worship Him. Remember what they said before? Chalila lanu me'azov et Hashem. It's exactly the opposite, right? God forbid we would never abandon God, we would never worship other idols. Well, that's exactly what they're doing here. And of course, at this point, they're in a bit of trouble. Look in Pasuk Tet, at the end of Pasuk Tet, we're told, you know, we know the cycle of Sefer Shoftim, right? They, 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 they sin, and God sends a punishment, and they cry out to God, and then uh, God sends a Shofet, and then the cycle starts again, right? And so every time the cycle starts again, God says, wait a second, didn't, didn't you say you were going back to Yoshua Kavdalit? Didn't you say you were going back to the terms of the breed? Okay, so let's look at what happens in Pasuk Tet at the end, the last three words of Pasuk Tet, Vatetzer Yisrael Me'od. Am Yisrael's in a lot of trouble. They're very upset. We're really sorry we sinned. We're really, really sorry we sinned. Could you send us a, a savior? Right? And that's, you know, that's what's been happening until now. And at this point, God turns to the people and says as follows. Look at Pasuk Yudalev. Vayomer Hashem el b'nei Yisrael. Halo Mitzrayim. Umin ha'emorim. Umin b'nei Amon. Umin plishtim v'tzidonim v'amalek. Uma'on lachatzu etchem. V'tisaku elai v'oshi etchem miyadam. All these people persecuted you and you cried out to me and I saved you. V'atem. Azavtem oti. But you abandoned me. And you worshipped other gods. I will not continue to save you. Remember that word, that was the choice, right? Yoshua said, who are you going to choose? You're going to choose God or you're going to choose these other nations? Oh, no, no. We choose God. And God comes here and says, no, 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 you didn't choose God. You chose those other nations. You only come to me when it's convenient, right? Now go to, your, to, to, to the other gods, right, who you actually chose. They will save you at the time of your trouble. Okay, so at this point, 
um, you know, Amisrael is, is actually, um, you know, in, in a bit of hot water, right? Because, uh, you know, their, their, their final hope seems to have turned against them. And so they, they go into panic mode, right? So look what they say in Pasuk Tetzvah. No, no, we really sinned. Do whatever you want to do. Just please save us. Okay? Now, to get a sense of, you know, how desperate they are, look at what they do in the next passage. They don't just use their words. They actually do an action. And look at what they do. Vayasiru et Right? They, they do exactly what they did back in Yoshua Perak of Dalid in order to, uh, to, to, to convene the covenant, right? And they take all those idols which are in their midst, and they actually get rid of them. And that act seems to, uh, uh, seems to, to, to be intended to show God that this time they're really sincere. They have violated their verbal commitments over and over and over. They've shown over and over and over that they don't take their words seriously. And God, when he shows that he's you know, kind of finished playing with their game, they say, oh, no, no, this time we really mean it. And uh, to show you that we mean it, we're going to get rid of all of these idols in our midst. Okay, so then our next question is, is does God accept this? Right? What's God's response? So let's look at what, at the continuation of Pasuk Tetzayin, right? I mean, you know, God has pretty much made a programmatic statement before, I'm not accepting this anymore, right? You've gone a little bit too far. And look at what happens in Pasuk Tezayin. What does that mean? Right? It's, it's entirely unclear what that means. And the Mepharshim are very, very divided as to what it means. Okay, so for lack of time, I'm not going to read it with you inside, but in source number four, Rashi, who seems to be following here, the Targum, and actually also some Midrashic sources as well, is focused on the usual meaning of katsar nefesh, which means disgusted. But tiktsar nafsho ba'amal Yisrael, Rashi's a little unclear here, but the Targum is really pretty pretty clear that what it means is, is God was disgusted by the burdens of Yisrael. He was sick and tired of them. Okay? That's one possible reading. Radak, here in source number five, <coughs> says, you know, I mean, you can see the part that I bolded for you. Uperusho, v'tiktsarnafsho, yechdal ritzono milagdil amal Yisrael. Right? God couldn't bear am Yisrael's Miseries anymore. It's a bit of a um, it's a bit of a different reading of the word katsar nefesh. Katsar nefesh usually means he lost patience, right? He was he was he was disgusted by it. He was repulsed by it. He lost patience with it. But uh, the Radak reads it in a more sympathetic way, right? So God really just couldn't bear the uh, Israel's miseries, and so he forgave them. Well, this ambiguity. Um, is really, I think, the background to Yiftach, right? Because what happens in our next pasuk, or in our next few psukim, look at Yud Aleph Aleph, V'yiftach hagiladi haya gibor chayo. Right? So the, the question, I think, that, uh, that, that hovers in the background is, is, yif, is Yiftach the answer 
to Am Yisrael's troubles is Yiftach, the indication that God has forgiven them, right? At least at first glance, it would seem to be that the answer should be yes. Yiftach is the Moshiach. He is the Savior who is going to go out and fight Ammon. And yet, we do have to note one interesting anomaly, and that is that the Pasuk never tells us, Vayakem Hashem Moshiach et Yiftach Hagiladi, right? There's no divine intervention in the appointment of Yiftach, and perhaps more importantly, I would, uh, I, would, I would question whether or not we should look at Yiftach as a salvation, as a savior, or perhaps as a troubler, okay? Is he, is he, is he, is he throwing Am Yisrael deeper into the despair of Sefer Shoftim, or is he in fact positioned in order to pull them out of the trouble in which they're in. I think that the ambiguity that is embedded here into Perak Yud, Pasuk Tadzayin Vatitzar, Nafsho Ba'amal Yisrael is perhaps deliberate. It indicates that Yiftach has the potential to bring about the solution or perhaps the potential to exacerbate the problem. So in order to understand what Yiftach does, we have to perhaps understand what he is meant to do, what are his strengths, what is Yiftach supposed to do for Am Yisrael in order to pull them out of their troubles. And I'm going to suggest that uh, the military situation is a side point, right? Based on what we've seen until now, right? It's very nice for Yiftach to come and save them from Ammon. And that certainly seems to be the, 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 let's say, the surface problem, right? But the deeper problem is not Ammon. The deeper problem is the people. The deeper problem is the fact that the people have violated their commitments over and over and over, that the people do not remain committed to their own words, that they take their words lightly. And who is Yiftach? Yiftach is the person who understands the power of words because he is born with them, right? And think of his name, right? Yiftach Piv, right? He is the one who opens his mouth. He opens his mouth and he is immediately effective. And what I want to suggest is, is that Yiftach, who is born with the power of words, is positioned as the leader who is meant to teach the people to take their words seriously, right? The person who understands how important words are, he is the one who can say to the people, you can't just say things and then violate them the next day. That's not the way it works. A person who is going to be taken seriously for the power of their words has to take their words seriously. Well, Yiftach... Um, has another advantage. Before we, we begin to understand the trajectory of Yiftach's life, I want to make one more point, and that is that Yiftach has another advantage that I think positions him to be an effective leader and to bring about the desired results at this time, and that is the predicament that Yiftach is in at the beginning of his story. We won't see it inside. I'll just uh, uh, mention what the backdrop of his story is. We know that Yiftach is, um, is, is, is rejected by his brothers, and he is expelled from the house, right? And he, he goes off 
to a different land and he gathers around him all of these anashim, reikim, and he lives with them and that's because he's been expelled from his, uh, from his home, right? And at some point, when the people are in trouble with Ammon, look at what happens in Perak Yud Aleph, Pasuk Hey, look at what happens, Vayhi Ka'asher Nilchamu Vnei Ammon Im Yisrael, the, the, the Ammonites are fighting Israel. They go to bring Yiftach home. Go be our officer so that we can fight Ammon. You hated me. You expelled me from my father's house. And why are you coming to me now when things are bad for you? What does that sound like? It sounds exactly like God's predicament vis-a-vis the people. I'm going to read those last words again, and I want you to think of God saying them to the people. Madua batem elai ata kasher sar lachem. Why are you coming to me now when things are bad for you? Right? So Yiftach seems to be in a similar kind of predicament as God. He doesn't trust the people's words, and therefore he is the one who is positioned to repair the people. Yiftach is the one who can teach the people to get back on track again. And that's what we really expect from our leaders in Sefer Shoftim. In Sefer Shoftim, it's only the ostensible role of the leader that he is engaged in saving them militarily from whatever enemy seems to be there at that time. The real role of these leaders is to fix the deeper problem, the religious problem, the problem that the people have of staying committed to their words. And so Yiftach can use both his uh, empathy for God's position and his power over words in order to teach the people how to restore their commitments to God and get this period of Am Yisrael's settlement, uh, the first period of Am Yisrael's settlement in the land, back on track again. Okay, so in order to understand the, the, the trajectory of Yiftach's life and also why I'm, I'm so convinced that Yiftach is the person who, who, who was born with these uh, oratorial skills, with this power over words, I want to divide his story into four parts. And I did it for you here on your source sheet. Right? The first section, Yiftach becomes leader. In the second section, Yiftach uh, is, 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 uh, is portrayed as a, as a diplomat. In the third section, we have Yiftach, the warrior. And in the fourth section, we have the epilogue to the story, which we'll talk about soon. Each of these sections has a conversation at its center. In other words, words function to thrust forward the trajectory of the plot. Right? And in each of these sections, what we see is how reliant Yiftach is on his own words. And we're not going to be able to read through the whole story, of course, but I'm going to show you some highlights from each of these sections so you get a sense of what we're talking about. In this first section, we've already seen the Anshei Gil'ad, uh, the Ziknei Gil'ad, come to Yiftach, they try to woo him back, 
And eventually he agrees. Look at how he agrees in Pasuk Tet. Right? If, in fact, I do, uh, uh, you, you bring me back to fight on your behalf, and God gives them into my hands, I will be your leader. So note as a side point, I, I don't want to make too much of this, that they had originally asked him to be their katsin. Right, their military leader, and he would like to be their rosh. Right, he'd like to be in a in a better position of leadership. But what I really want to draw your attention to here is that he says, "If you bring me back, v'natan Hashem otam lefanai." Look at that. He's using God's name. He's giving God credit for the potential victory. And this starts out really very, very optimistically. And one of the ways I think that we see the power of Yiftach's words is by looking at how the the Ziknei Gilad respond to this usage of God's name in Pasuk Yud. Vayomru Ziknei Gilad el Yiftach Adonai yeshomea benotenu imlo chidvarcha ken naaseh. Look at how the first word that comes out of their mouth is God, right? Yiftach mentioned God. Everybody says, oh yeah, yeah, God, right, God. And they, of course, mention Yiftach's words. Your words will come true. Yes, we will make you the leader. Now, look at how this section ends. At the end of this section, in Pasuk Yud Aleph, Vayelech Yiftach im ziknei gil'ad, Vayasimu ha'am oto alehem, Lerosh ulekatsin, Vayidaber Yiftach, Et kol divarav lifnei Adonai b'mitzvah. Right? How does it end? He goes to mitzvah and he speaks all of his words before God. This is, I think, I think it's an extraordinary verse. Right? It's an extraordinary passage. What it tells us is, is that in the initial stages of Yiftach's leadership, he is using his words for good. Okay, now... I'm going to make a couple points about this second section. It's uh, a long section. It's interestingly uh, a long section. And, and, and the first thing that's interesting about this section is that, you know, we know that Yiftach was chosen to be leader for one very simple reason. Not because they loved him, not because he was an insider, he was the, the ultimate outsider, but because he was a Gibor Chayel. He was a strong man. He was a person that had great military strength. So you'd think that the next Pasuk would be, he goes into war. But he doesn't. In fact, I mean, it's really, I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very um, uh, unexpected twist to the story. Instead of going into war, Yiftach uses his words, right? It's what we tell our children. Use your words, right? But he engages in an act of diplomacy. Instead of going into battle, he sends a message to the king of Ammon. It's a very long message. He tells a whole historical story and he tries to avoid the war with his words. Okay, now he's unsuccessful. That's not because his words are unsuccessful. It's because the king of Ammon doesn't want to accept them. But look at the last pasuk of this section. Again, it focuses us, focuses us on his words. Look in pasuk kafchet. Velo shama. Melech bnei Amon el divrei yiftach asher shalach elav. 
right? So again, it, the, the focus is on the words. He doesn't listen to the words. The words have failed. And so now we have no choice other than to go into war. There is one other point that I want to draw to your attention. I'm not sure how much to make of it. But if you look in Pasukah Tetvav, right, as part of this message that Yiftach sends to Melech Hamon, it says as follows, Vayomer lo koamar Yiftach. So says Yiftach. Now, the reason I'm not sure entirely what to make of it is because there are some good figures in Tanakh that their words are introduced with koamar, not just God, right? Koamar chizkiyahu, koamar hamelech shlomo, koamar avdecha Yaakov. We do sometimes have the koamar that introduces uh, the words of a good character. But oftentimes these koamars, they clash with God's words, right? Like, Ko amar paro, ko amar hamelech hagadol, melech ashur, ko amar ben hadad, etc., etc. So, again, I'm not sure how much to make of it, but it does suggest someone that is very, very confident about the way in which they use the words. So says Yiftach. And you better listen, right? Ko amar Yiftach. Okay, we know that Yiftach is very confident about his words. And now we get to this uh, third section in which diplomacy has failed. And so the next part of the story would seem to be about the war itself. Look in Pasuk Kaftet, Vati al Ruach Hashem. That's what we're looking for for these Shoftim. He gets the Spirit of God. One can sort of even uh, speculate that he gets the Spirit of God because he has shown himself until now to be a pious leader, to be a righteous leader. He's using his words well, and God gives him Ruach Hashem, Vayavor Tagilad, the Et Menashe, Vayavor Mitzvegilad, Umi Mitzvegilad, Avar Bnei Amon. Look at the verbs that are used there. He's moving, right? He's in movement towards Amon, and then the story comes screeching to a halt. Right? I know it comes screeching to a halt because the continuation of the story is in Pasuk Lamed Bet. Look in Pasuk Lamed Bet. Vayavor Yiftach El Bnei Amon That should have been the next Pasuk, right? He goes on, he passes on to Bnei Amon in order to fight with them, but he stops in the middle of all that movement, and what does he stop to do? To make that very unfortunate neder, which is the center of this story, right? It's the center of the section. I thought this was the war section, right? It was supposed to be about a battle, but Yiftach just can't give up on his words, right? And so before going into battle, even after he's gotten Ruach Hashem and he started the movement, he pauses to make a vow. We get a sense. It's a, it's a very unfortunate vow, right? By, by all standards, right? And its results are bad, and its initial taking is bad. Maybe we'll just read it quickly, although I, 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 I'm sure that many of you are familiar with it. Look in Pasuk Lamed. If you will give Amon into my hands, whoever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I come back in peace from Amon, that will be for God, and I will sacrifice them. Does he intend child sacrifice? Does he intend the sacrifice of a cow or a sheep who is coming out of the doors of his house to greet him? 
okay, there's a bit, uh, you, you see where I'm going with this. I'm not going to talk about it much. It, it, it remains ambiguous, right? And, and the sources go in different directions, right? The linguistics suggest that he means his, his daughter, right? That's what the linguistics suggest, both in terms of the correlation to Akedah Yitzchak, which we're going to see in a few minutes, and in terms of the fact that, you know, Lavoli Krati right, to come to greet me out of the doors of my house certainly suggests that we're talking about a person. I, I, I don't really intend to go into that. What interests me for our purposes is that he is, seems to have, have gotten pretty reliant on his words, maybe overly so. And, um, and Chazal are very critical of this vow, not just because of its results, but because of the way in which he is using his speech. A neder is not considered to be an appropriate usage of speech. Chazal do not like nidarim. And, 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 and more so, the way that he phrases it, they don't like. Well, so let, let's look at a couple of midrashim here. In, in source number seven, um, the, the midrash in Breshit Rabbah says, Arba'ahen shetavu shalo kehogen. Four people ask for something inappropriately. Three people, God gave them a good response. He gave them an appropriate uh, uh, response. And one, he, he, he didn't give them an appropriate response. Who's that one? That's Iftach, right? Well, I don't want to get into all the details of the Midrash for lack of time, but you see that they're, they're very critical of the speech itself, right? He didn't ask properly. This was not a proper request both because of its formulation and because it is a neder. And here I want to show you, in general, um, Chazal are very wary of nedarim. I'll explain why I think that's so in a moment. But look at source number eight. The, 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 the Midrash again in Bereshit Rabbah, a different Midrash, says as follows. There are only four people in Tanakh that make a neder, that take a vow that is explicit. That tells us what the vow consists of. Sometimes we have the Yidru Nidarim, right? They took vows, right? But there are only four vows that are explicitly formulated in the Tanakh. And the Midrash says as follows. Shnai Nadru Vihifsidu. Two people took these vows and they lost. Shnai Nadru Vinistakru. And two people took the vows and they gained from it. Who are the two that took vows and lost? Yaakov Nadar Vihifsid. The Midrash is going to go out and say that the reason that Rachel died on the way was because of Yaakov's neder. I'm not going to get into that at all. Yiftach nadar v'yifsid. Yiftach lost. He lost his daughter because of his neder. Chana nadra v'nistakra. Yisrael nadru v'nistakra. Okay, we don't really have the time to go into all of this, but I, I want to make a suggestion as to which nidarim become successful, namely Chana and Am Yisrael, and which Nidarim are not successful, namely Yaakov and Iftach, and, and what that says to us about the nature of the Neder. A Neder is problematic. I'm, I'm uh, distinguishing between Rabbinic Nidarim, right? Get out of your head, Masechet Nidarim, right? And Biblical Nidarim. There is a distinction. Biblical Nidarim, the four Nidarim that we have here, are all formulated as follows. God, if you give me X, I will give you Y, right? 
which does sound a little chutzpahdik, right? It almost sounds, you know, like you could imagine a child. If you give me my new bike, I will go to Minion every day this week, right? That's, something, that's somewhat what it sounds like, right? It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit of chutzpah. I need this. So I'm going to come up with a way to get God to give it to me. That's what a neder is. The two nederim that work is not, uh, um, are, are have one thing in common, which is that what they ask for God is in order to give it back to God. If you give me a child, says Chana, I will dedicate that child to service of God. Right? Yisrael says, if you give me victory over the Canaanim, I will consecrate those cities to God. Okay? Yiftach's vow is about his own needs. He wants victory. He wants to get be accepted among his brothers. He wants leadership. Whatever it is that he wants. He is using his words to serve himself. His words have risen above service of God. Above the attempt to fulfill his divine destiny. They are now about Yiftach. And this is the problem with his vow. And this is the reason that he can't take back his vow even when the halacha allows him to do so. That's what, that's what all, the, uh, all the Midrashim say. He could have taken back his vow, but he can't take back his vow because his words have to be important. They are more important than God's words. They're more important than serving God. Look at what he says here in Pasuk, uh, look in Pasuk Lamed Hay. Vayhi, when Yiftach sees his daughter, Kir Oto Ota, when he sees her, Vayikrat Begadav, he tears his clothes, right? It seems to indicate that he didn't, he didn't actually have her in mind. Vayomer, and he says, Aha, Biti, oh, whoa, my daughter, Hachra, Hichratani, you have... Uh, you have you you have uh, um, made my my uh, my decree. You have decreed against me. The atayit beochray. You have been you have troubled me. The anochi patsiti fi el adonai velo uchal shuv. I cannot take it back. I opened my mouth to God and look at what she says. She agrees with him. But tovei avi patsita picha l'Hashem aseli kasher yatsami picha. You've opened your mouth to God. Do what it is that you have to do. Well, all of the Midrashim tell us he could have changed it. He could have taken back the neder. He could have been poteach the neder. But he does not because his words become his essence. And his words become too important to him. And they rise above his ultimate goal, his ultimate divine destiny, his ultimate service of God. If you look at source number nine, source number nine, we're not going to read it inside, uh, tells us that all he had to do was go to Pinchas, and Pinchas would have released him from that neder. And if you look in source number 10, the Midrash tells us, the Midrash quotes a pasuk from Yirmiyahu, right? And the pasuk starts, look in the middle of line two, Right? Asher lo tiviti, velo dibarti, velo alta alibi. Right? This is God speaking to your meow. He says, you know, um, uh, child sacrifice is something that I did not command, I did not speak, and it never even entered my heart. That's what God is saying there. Now, what are these three pieces 
of the Pasuk, Asher Lot Tziviti, the Midrash says, that was with Avram, with Akedah Yitzchak. I didn't command him in the end to sacrifice his son. I don't like child sacrifice. Velo dibarti, look at that part where I bolded. Lo dibarti liftach, lahakriv li et bito. This is not my dibor. These are not my divarim. This is not a proper usage of words to serve God. This is the moment when Yiftach's words clash with God's words. It is no longer God's words that concern Yiftach. He uses his special God-given talents not for serving God, but for serving his own needs. And this takes us to that final epilogue of the Yiftach story in Parakut Ben, which represents the ultimate misuse of words. In Perak Yudbet, the people of Ephraim come to Yiftach and they begin to uh, sort of harass him and say, why didn't you call us to go out to war? Again, the story starts out with a conversation. Once again, it's the story of words that moves the trajectory of the story forward. And of course, the people of Ephraim threaten to burn down Yiftach's house and Yiftach becomes enraged and he begins a civil war against the people of Ephraim. And he tur- and, and look in Pasuk Dalid, Vayikbot Yiftach et kol anshei gilad vayilachem et Ephraim. He gathers together all the people of, Yiftach, of, of Gilad and he wages a war with Ephraim and look at what happens in Pasuk Hay. Vayilkod Gilad Mabrot Hayardena Ephraim. Gilad captures the crossing bridge of Ephraim. Vayomrulo Anshe Gilad. And the people of Gilad would test every person who was crossing over that crossing place. And they would say to them, Ha Ephrati Ata? Are you an Ephraimite? Of course, he would say no, right? Because he, he knew he'd be killed if he'd say yes. And so they would say to him, those people of Gilad, Emorna Shibolet. Say the word Shibolet. And they would say Sibolet because they couldn't say the Shin. And so they would be killed. In the end of the story, Yiftach uses the power of words to massacre the people of Ephraim. This is an abuse of words. He uses words to trap. He uses words to kill. The story ends with 42,000 people dead in a horrific civil war that revolves around the power of words. Yiftach does not, in the end, use his talents his ability, his knowledge of the power of words, his ability to speak, to teach Am Yisrael how to remain committed to God, how to remain committed to the words. In the end, Yiftach uses his words in order to serve himself. And in this final uh, source I brought for you in source number 11, which we won't see inside, Chazal referred to Yiftach as an Ilan Srak, a tree that produces no fruit. Of course, he produces no fruit because he only had one daughter 
And it seems that he sacrifices her in one way or another. I know that there's a, 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 a machloket about what actually happens to her. But she, of course, has no continuity. Yiftach produces no continuity, no descendants. Perhaps more importantly, he does not fulfill his divine destiny. He does not restore Am Yisrael to the breed of Yoshua Kafdalid. And so we are plunged even more deeply into the deterioration of the period of the Shoftim. And the period of the Shoftim ends disastrously. It ends with civil war. It ends on the cusp of destruction, of utter annihilation. It ends with a Stone and Amorah story. And Am Yisrael are threatened with extinction. Yiftach does not pull us out of that period. So who does? And the answer, of course, is that the Tikkun for well, I'm saying, of course, and you're all thinking she's going to talk about Megillat Root again. And the answer, one answer is, of course, Megillat Root. But the other answer is Sefer Shmuel. Sefer Shmuel is the tikkun for Sefer Shoftim. And Sefer Shmuel begins with a person who has the power of words. And here I'm not speaking about Shmuel. I'm speaking about Shmuel's mother. I'm speaking about Hannah. Her story is the opening of Sefer Shmuel. Her story is the bridge that takes us from a period in which words are used, in a, in a, are, are abused, are misused, are used in a terrible way as a violation of the people's commitments to a period of milucha, to a period of social unity, to a period in which the people are pulling together their commitments in order to lay the foundations for the Beit HaMikdash, Chana opens her story by making a neder, a vow. It's a good vow. It is based on a desire for zera, an ashim, for continuity. It's based on the recognition that any request from God must involve something that is about your service of God. And so she says to God, if you give me this child, I will give him to you in your service. And so she becomes the progenitor of prayer because she understands the power of words. But I don't really want to talk about Hannah. I mean, I do, but I, I, I want to get to that um, uh, power that she passes down to her son, Shmuel, who is, of course, someone who has the gift to serve God with his words. This is what we know from the Mizmor Tihilim, Moshe ve'aharon b'chonav u'shmuel b'korei shmo. Each one has a gift, right? Moshe's gift is that he's Moshe, Aharon's gift is that he's a Kohen, and Shmuel's gift is that he can call on God. And in fact, that's how we meet Shmuel at the very beginning of Shmuel Aleph. In Perak Gimel, we are told that Shmuel, even though Dvar Hashem Hayayakar Bayamimahem, the word of God was very rare in this time. The word of God comes to Shmuel. And Shmuel internalizes that word of God. And if you look at Shmuel Aleph, Perak Zion, Pasuk Hey, we have Shmuel gathering the people together. Shmuel Aleph, Perak Zion, Pasuk Hey, Vayomer Shmuel, Kivtsuet Kol Yisrael Hamitzpata. 
gather everybody together to mitzvah, and I will daven on your behalf to God. And they do, and look in Pasuk Chet, Vayomru v'nei Yisrael el Shmuel, Al tacharish mimenu mizok el Adonai Eloheinu, v'yoshiyenu miyad plishtim, don't be silent, cry out to God on our behalf. We have these wonderful moments in which Shmuel is, is davening on behalf of the people, and the people are recognizing the power of tefillah, the, the power of restored communication between the people of God, that communication has been sparse since the period of the Shoftim when God threw up his hands in despair and said, I'm no longer available for you. Go and cry out to those gods who you actually seem to prefer to worship. And Shmuel is the one who redraws the lines of communication between the people of, and God. Shmuel is the one who teaches the people how to go back to the covenant of Yoshua Kafdalin and remain committed to that covenant. And the place that uh, I think we see it most of all is in the same parak that we're looking at, in Shmuel Aleph, Parak Zion, Pasuk Gimel. When Shmuel turns to all of Beit Yisrael, Vayomer Shmuel, El kol Beit Yisrael lemor. Im bechol levavchem, atem shavim el Hashem. If you really want to return to God with all of your heart, and not just in this temporary fashion, like has been the case in the in the in the previous book, hasiru et Elohei hanechar mitochachem. This is our third and final usage of this phrase, the phrase that we saw first with Yaakov and secondly became the cornerstone of the Brit of Yoshua Kafdalid. This phrase, which Yiftach was not able to get the people to properly adhere to, here in Shmuel Aleph, Perak Zion, Shmuel turns to the people and says, get rid of those idols, get rid of those idols from your hearts, and prepare your hearts for God, and serve only Him. And then He will save you from the Plishtim. And in fact, they do. They serve only God. And it's at this point that we have uh, Shmuel davening to God and Shmuel convincing the people of the importance of this kind of communication between God and his people. I think that this is why Chazal compare Yiftach and Shmuel. These are similar people who are born with similar talents, with a similar strength. They are both born with a deep understanding of how to use their words. And ultimately, even though they start out the same, they are responsible for properly using those talents in order to realize their divine destiny. Yiftach, in the final analysis, leaves behind a ravaged people, a people who have endured a terrible civil war as a result of his words and are no closer to God in the book of Shoftim. Shmuel comes 
and uses those same words in order to solidify that kind of relationship between the people and God that we're looking for. And this is what sets out, this is what lays the groundwork for the next period of Am Yisrael's history, the period of kingship. And so what we see, of course, is that it is not the raw material that determines success, but what we do with it. Thank you. Thank you.